It's our reflection episode. On tonight's show, we will look back at some of the strategies that worked and some that didn't in the 2022 season. And more importantly, what we should do different next year. Plus, we'll have our usual waiver wire, pitcher preview, and injury update segments. Patrick David of Baseball HQ Radio joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruben Guy. How are you, Ruben? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Back from vacation. How, uh, from vacation. How was yours, Ruben? Mine was great. I actually went up to Syracuse and I got to watch the AAA Mets, or the Mets who used to be Mets, play for the Syracuse Mets, which was quite interesting and it was actually fun to watch. And they lost to the Woo Sox because the Woo Sox have a couple of pretty good players. Nice. I was up in uh, New Hampshire in the White Mountains, took some time off, did some caves, did some hiking. There's actually the world's largest, or at least North America's largest arcade uh, there. They've got like this whole floor of an arcade museum of all the old arcade games in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So, so much fun. Um, And uh, yeah, outdoors, indoors, it was just a great, nice uh, break and uh, back refreshed, back for September. Awesome. Do they have Spy Hunter? Because that's my favorite arcade game. I don't remember playing that, but uh, if it was there, they, they have it. I mean, they have all the old Pac-Mans that you can dream of. Uh, but my kid and I actually spent a lot of time playing this game off-road that I grew up playing, and oh, he love loves it game. too. I yeah, love with, with the red, blue, and the yellow cars. just And the, and the nitros, yeah. That brings back a lot of memories and a lot yeah. of lost quarters. <laughs> well, we played like an hour and a half worth. Uh, which was amazing, and they've got this, you know, bowling and stuff like that, and uh, and, and mini golf and uh, bumper cars and go karts, you know, you, you name it, they have it. But a uh, great trip, glad to be back, and we've got a great show today. Want to welcome Patrick Davitt from BaseballHQ.com and Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome to the show once again, Patrick Davitt. How are you? Hi, Ariel. Hi, Ruvain. Uh, great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking with you guys again. Oh, likewise. Always a great pleasure having you on the show. Patrick does a fantastic job over at Baseball HQ and uh, writing and the podcast, and uh, glad to have you on ours. Uh, And so uh, we jump right into it on the show here, and today we're going to have a little bit of a reflection. It's our reflection episode, and we're going to talk a little bit about what went right, what went wrong in 2022, what we could do next year, what we're thinking of improving, uh, and so on and so forth. So let's just start with you, uh, Patrick. Um, obviously, going into the year, you might have had a certain strategy, or maybe you focused on some players that you thought were undervalued or whatnot. What were some of the strategies that you thought before the season to do, and they turned out to be the right one? Well, in Tout American League, it's a single league format, of course, a rotisserie five by five with on base percentage instead of batting average. I decided this year for the first time to use a spread the risk strategy in that league. So I had no player over $30 and I got better players throughout the lineup, which I thought was going to be important or worth trying at least to not have so many dead spots on the roster as the end game rolls around and all the players are gone. The the player pool, especially on the hitting side in single league formats, as you know, is pretty dire. And so I figured uh, this time I was going to not go after the Jose Ramirez's and Aaron Judge's of the world, 
but instead try to spread my money around a little more evenly with a bunch of, you know, 24, 20, 15 guys rather than uh, 35, 40 dollar guys. And I have to say, I, I think it worked pretty well. I managed to uh, to come out of it, the uh, draft with a pretty solid team, I thought. But we, I just had a very, very tough start on the pitching side, mostly because I had two Toronto starters who, whom I got for $24-ish each, and that was uh, Jose Barrios, who's turned out to be a real inconsistent guy, and Kevin Gausman, who started off looking like a Cy Young contender, then he got hurt. And all through the year, these two guys have just been getting killed by their teammates. Bad defense, errors all over the place, no run support. The bullpens are cost. I think Barrios, at one time I looked it up, he was the pitcher in the American League whose bullpen support had been the worst in the entire league as far as allowing inherited runners to score. His earned run average when I looked it up at that time was about 540. And if they had just stopped runners from scoring at the league average, his ERA would have been about 440. That's how much damage that the bullpen of Toronto was doing to Jose Barrios. But everything kind of started coming around a little bit, and uh, I was in 10th place, 11th place for quite a while, and now I've climbed up to, I'm in a kind of a solid 8th, 7th kind of thing, and 4th place is within my sight. So I think there's a possibility that I could get that high. Certainly I have aspirations to move up. I just made a fairly big trade at the deadline and uh, to, to address some, some opportunities in the categories. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about this team, even though I'm not going to win. But uh, I'm excited anytime I have a team that's not doing well that I manage into a situation where they're doing better. So the uh, spread the risk strategy is something I think I'm going to be looking at in the future as well for this league. I have a couple of comments, uh, uh, Patrick. So first of all, on Kevin Gaussman, uh, his his ERA is three one four, which is fantastic this year. His BABIP three seventy one. That is a tremendously high BABIP. Do you think that that is a product of being on Toronto? And if so, will that continue next year? I can't imagine three seventy one would continue. But do you think he'll still have an elevated BABIP next year? Here's the problem. The official scorer in Toronto simply will not call an error on, on Toronto's defensive players. If you look it up, I, I think that uh, Bo Bichette has more errors than any shortstop in the American League. And I'll tell you, I've personally seen at least 10 errors that he made that were scored base hits, including where he just picks the ball up and throws it into the stands or throws it 15 feet short and 10 feet wide. It's ridiculous. And I'm sure that most of them happened on Kevin Gosman's watch. And the, uh, the official scoring in Toronto is really poor. It's really poor across baseball, I think. But when so many what should be outs are not outs, that really is going to inflate the BABIP in an unfair way to Kevin Gosman, I think. And that's going to inflate his, uh, his ERA as well. Uh, so yes. are, are, you, are you telling me that the issue is the official scorer? I mean... Uh... <laughs> it's not the only issue, but... Gosman is not giving up a lot of hard contact. He's actually pitching really well. And I can tell you from personal experience, I watch all my starter starts, especially here in Toronto, because it's so easy to do. And I can tell you, it's astonishing how many bad scoring calls there are that make the Blue Jays defense look better than it is. Fly balls dropped. We had a, an instance where a guy in center field, it was Raymond Tapia, um, gave up a... Uh, easy fly ball that should have been caught that bounced 
all the way to the fence and a bunch of guys circled the bases to score. I'm not saying the official scoring is the only thing, but I don't think it can be discounted as a factor in the somewhat elevated BABIPs of most of the Toronto pitchers, in fact, have higher BABIPs than you'd think. Hey, Ruben, what do you think of this? If, uh, if I'm the head of the Blue Jays and I want to retain pitchers, do I tell the official scorers to, to prop up the errors so that my pitcher's ERA will look bloated so that they'll have a harder time signing elsewhere? <laughs> no, I, I hardly I hardly doubt that, but I, I can see how they want to keep the errors down there. And it, it, listen, official scores can be very finicky when it comes to certain players and certain teams, and they can always be like what they call homers, and they want to make sure that the whole team looks better as opposed to just one or two players. But jumping into the Kevin Gaussman discussion here, in the first half so far in the 94 innings, he had an ERA of 287 and a batting average against of 276. He's got a 369 ERA in his last 46 innings with an average with a batting average against a 272. So I I don't know where that spirit's that that's exactly coming from. He's actually given up more home runs in the second half, which has nothing to do with errors. However, if there's an error in an inning, that's counted as a hit. That and then he gives up a home run instead of getting of being out of an inning. Yes, that can affect his ERA and, and that can be a big issue as well. But I, I think it's also a matter of where he plays. He's playing in the American League East. Last year he was playing in the in the National League West. Better pitchers, uh, ballparks in general. Better team. Uh, he was on a better team. I mean, I'm not saying better team, but it, a more chance for a win just because they had better defense behind him. And I'm not saying that it's completely something having to do with the the official score, but I wouldn't be a you know I wouldn't be 100 surprised about it. Interesting. Um, well, I mean, you know, he's going to be in Toronto again next year, so you got to figure some of that luck goes uh, bad luck goes away, but some of the underlying stuff being in Toronto does remain. The other comment I have, Patrick, uh, is. You you are do you did the spread the risk approach. Uh, it's funny. I, I don't normally target that when I do auctions, but I find that I gravitate towards it because I find that the bargains are doing it. Um, you can get more aggregate value by doing some of that spread the risk, and especially in a mono league, you're going to be able to accumulate a lot more at bats and innings by doing that rather than going for the top player and filling with some scrubs. So I kind of agree with the strategy, and I, I, I find I do that because of a valuation standpoint. Yeah, I'm not surprised, actually, because even in situations, if your valuation system shows a, uh, a guy like, I don't know, Aaron Judge is a $30 player, and you think to yourself, at draft, of course, not, he's a $50 player this year on the field because of all the home runs and how well he's playing. But guys like him and Jose Ramirez, the guy who drafted Jose Ramirez, who's winning the league, it's Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ, who adopted a very, a very one-sided strategy, and it seems to be working. But if you think Jose Ramirez is worth $39 and the price settles at 40 I think you're still painting yourself into a bit of a corner because as you get down the list, there's not enough good players left for you to fill in all around the edges with everybody else still holding their full you know, uh, allotment of money and you're $40 short after one player. I think it affects maybe not just the valuations or maybe not the valuations at all, but it certainly affects your psychology when you're looking at the next player and do I want to get for $40, for $41, this is how I put it to myself. For $41, do I want Jose Ramirez plus a $1 scrub? Or do I want a $21 player and a $20 player? And in 15 team mixed, I don't think that question is so bad because the replacement value is a little higher. But in, in mono leagues, 
that $1 player is simply not going to get enough plate appearances for him to be able to accumulate counting stats. And I think that's where the 40 plus 1 fails as a strategy. And that's why I decided this year to abandon it. And I think I'm going to abandon it in the future as well in this league format. Yeah, you raise the point, especially in a mono league, that you have to make sure you don't really end up with the $1 bids at the end. Doesn't mean that the 40, I mean, you couldn't buy a $40 player and not end up with $1 bids. You just can't buy two of them. So you do have to watch your spending. But, you know, I'm a big proponent of the market premium uh, argument that says that, listen, if I'd rather pay $1 extra for a $40 player than overspend by three for a $30 player, right? You're, you're losing value that way, and I'd rather be plus one than plus three. Uh, it's a relative market discount to do that. And, hey, listen, if it happens at the $40 level, take it. You know, it's it, you're going to bank something, and you won't run out of money, which is another issue uh, at the bottom where you have to overspend. So either way. All right, Ruvain, how about you? What was the strategy you employed that uh, you think was successful this year? I think there were two things that I did that really helped me be successful this year. First thing is not pay very high up on draft capital for stolen bases. The top stolen base guys, Starling Marte, Whit Merrifield, Jazz Chisholm, um, Alberto Mondesi, all those guys were pushed up uh, their value because of stolen bases in the preseason and for their possible potential. So I just didn't feel comfortable doing that because every year there's always somebody who jumps out of nowhere. You have that John Birdie that you can pick up on waiver wires that can just carry you for the rest of the season. So I really, I tried to stay away from that and it actually worked out because those players who people, who other players bid a lot more money and a lot more draft capital on, they just didn't really pan out and they didn't get the stolen bases that they wanted to and they ended up chasing stolen bases anyway. The second thing is I refused to pay top dollar for the closers. And I did not want to, I said this preseason, it's recorded on all our podcasts. I did not believe in that. Um, the only closers, top closers that really uh, panned out was Edwin Diaz, Kenley Jansen to a certain extent, Emmanuel Classe, and maybe Jordan Romero a little bit. I mean, if you consider him as one of the top ones, but everyone else, you guess you got the saves, but look at their ERAs and look at their whips. Usually when you have a top closer, you expect saves, good ERA, and good whip. But if you have Josh Hader and you get yourself 30 saves and an ERA that's right now at six, I mean, what are you, what are you doing with that? It's, it's, it's kind of counterproductive because you, I'd rather have a later guy who's not going to get as many saves as those top guys, but has an average ERA. Let's say three and a half. You know the guy's going to be three and a half or four or something like that. And I'm safer with that because all these top guys seem to have blown up this year. What am I going to do next year about it? I, I, I don't see myself play, paying for stolen bases again next year, and I don't think I'm going to pay for, for, uh, for top closers either because unless I can get Edwin Diaz real cheap, I don't think I'm interested in anyone. Do you agree with that, Patrick, with those two points? Yeah, I think I kind of do, and and uh, I'm going to talk a little later about a strategy I may take in in snake drafts, not in a, in a mono league about closers. I think the problem with the strategy, as Ruvain correctly identified, is that you spend heavily of your draft capital. There was guys going in the third round last year, and Hader was the classic example that he just didn't pan out. And the problem, the additional problem, I'll say with with the closer situation is it's not entirely a talent-based thing. It's It heavily depends on the manager's proclivities. So you can be the best pitcher in the bullpen, but if you happen to be in Tampa or to a lesser extent Minnesota, but also in Seattle, then you might have the best pitcher in the bullpen, but that doesn't mean you're going to get the saves. And you have to be real careful about that. And I think we're going to see more of that in the future as more and more teams start going to the 
high leverage, let's get the three, four, five hitters out in the eighth, and we don't care about the save. And unfortunately, us as Roto players, we do care about the saves, but Major League Baseball managers don't care what we think. They're trying to win games. And I think the valuation, the correct valuation and the correct strategy for acquisition of closers is going to be a real conundrum for the next few years until situations start to shake out. I would like to have had um, Josh Hader this year, and I didn't get him for one reason or another. I got, I got sniped in, in TGFBI, which is a snake draft. And, of course, now I'm delighted with that fact because I wouldn't have I got a pretty good player in that round, and uh, I'm glad I didn't waste the pick on Josh Hader, who looked like a solid lock for the longest time and turned out not to be. Well, I disagree with some of the, somewhat uh, of that. Um, as far as the steals go, I think that is true. I think that the premium paid by the market or, uh, was not just. I think that the there was no good locks anymore for the stolen bases. Um, my biggest strategies were to target guys like Tommy Edmond or Starling Marte. I thought those were going at reasonable prices. They were not overpays for the kind of production they, they gave. Uh, and I think that was fine. I did not see myself pushing up late talent, pushing up early talent. Uh, I just went for value early. Now, it was good to take some steals as you go, but I was comfortable taking like a Freddie Freeman who steals 10. And and I think I was comfortable taking a guy who does 10, a guy who does 7, a guy who does 12. Uh, I was fine chipping in that way. I didn't really blow anybody out of the water in stone bases in any league, but I got enough value. You know, I, I was so if I'm in the middle of the category, sure. Um, but I'll, I'll be better elsewhere. I didn't feel the need to pay for it, and I think overall it went out well. As far as the closers, um, I don't know. I, I, I kind of think that in the draft, all the guys late were busts. I think that anybody who threw a dart after, let's say, Gregory Soto, David Bednar, was just a bust. And the probability of a hit was earlier was on the top was fine. Um the super elite guys were too expensive. Hendricks, Hader, the cost to roster them was a ridiculous third round. Um, I, I that I saw no point in doing that. Uh, you're just passing up too much talent. But Diaz, Classe, Jordan Romano, Kenley Jansen, all those guys returned pretty much par value. And, of course, since closers were at a premium, that's actually a nice bargain that you got. I think that the hit rate was pretty high on those established closers. Um, now, it's not going to work for everywhere. Obviously, if you hit the wrong guy, if you got Chapman, that was terrible. Um, Knable was good for a certain extent. Uh, Taylor Rogers was good. Uh, to another hit, Rogers, uh, Rysel Iglesias. He was no, okay for the first two months. It was a mixed bag. But I, I, I think that the better part of, of where the you should hit in terms of getting hits uh, of of was somewhere up top, not the super elite, but the elite. I I, I disagree, and I think that's only going to be even worse next year because the committees are not going away; they're here to stay. So people who have great roles, people who strike out a lot, they're worth the money. Would I pay a super elite price for Edwin Diaz next year? Probably not. It's going to be sky high. But the next better guys, I, I would, because I think you need that closer. It's a category. You, It's one category. It's not like uh, you're paying for uh, a weak position. You actually do need the saves if you want to compete in Roto, mostly. 
But, you know, this year may have been just an anomaly, an anomaly with the closers because of the fact of the lockout and not knowing when, who's going to play, who's close. We didn't know what was going on, who the closers were going to be. That's why there was an added premium. So this may have just been a one-year thing where there was an added premium on the top closers. I think it may just go back to normal, and you can start seeing closers go off the board maybe fifth or sixth round, except for Edwin Diaz, who's going to go extremely expensive. Fair well, point. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, though. I was listening to an early draft champions draft that was going on on the uh, pull hitter podcast. And I had Rob DiPietro. I'm going to have him on uh, baseball HQ radio this week, uh, dropping on Friday. And I followed that draft and Edwin Diaz went in the second round. How about that? And the rationale was, well, Rob took him and he said he was, what he was trying to do was start an early closer run and nobody bit, but he said he was still happy to have what he thinks is the one sure thing closer in all of baseball. And we can argue that there's no such thing as a sure thing in any part of baseball, but particularly as we've noted in the closer market. But I don't think I think that next year what we're going to see is even more closers going even higher in drafts. The elite closers. I mean that's ridiculous. Second round, uh, the profile risk. Uh, I mean, if if he goes out and he gets injured, I mean you're dropping to somebody who who's terrible and you lose a second round pick. Um, the, the probability of a collapse of a closer is always higher. I mean, it's, it's just cl- relief pitchers are fickle. Uh, pitchers are fickle yeah. in general. It's, it's, yeah. I cannot see that argument. Um, uh, I, you know, in terms of strategies, you know, my general strategy as always is to stick to the value. And every year you take a look at what the market's doing. You take a look at what your values are and you try to find the hot spots of where to go. And I found hot spots high and low. Aaron Judge to me, was very reasonably priced, and I have a lot of shares of him. Mookie Betts, I think, Ruvain, one of our strategies was let's get Betts or Judge. That worked out. The stolen base guys, Marte, Edmund, that worked out. We had hot spots lower, Blackman, Ian Happ. We said all of these on the show, by the way. Those worked out. Um, the pitching, not as much for me. The pitching, well, we'll talk a little bit about what, what went wrong, uh, but... Uh, I do, uh, I do think, though, that the biggest strategy that I employed more this year was risk. And uh, I made a point to stay away from risk at the top. I made a point to get low-risk guys. Aaron Judge came up as one of the lowest uh, interscue players. Um, his homer total, every projection system projected the same amount. I mean, it was no question that he had the skill. And there's no question he's going to get the playing time. Uh, he's just very stable. Uh, and and obviously that was correct. Um, that was one of the big things I had. Any any comments? I think everything that you say makes an awful lot of sense. And I really have always believed in the core idea that you have to find value where you can get it. I'm old enough to remember there was a guy called Robert Stahl who put out a system, and there was a guy called Steve Mann. And these were pre-internet, so these were books that you bought off the bookshelves, uh, the bookstore shelves. And they all said the same thing. The, the only way to win this is to pay $27 for $28 players, you know, or $14 for $15 players. They were all very certain of that. And then the question is, since we all know that, then the ship, the scenario, I think, shifts to the draft table itself. And how are you managing your money? And what are you doing regarding what other people are doing, zigging when they're zagging? Or, or are you following along? All of those kind of things uh, are I think going to be increasingly important. And I think it's an area where might be the next, the, the next big fantasy baseball industry trend. 
is more analysts trying to figure out the game theory of it the way that they have done in poker. Because so, so many guys playing poker understand the odds. So the only way to win is to master the psychology of the game and the understanding of money management. Yeah, it's about the valuation and it's about managing the risk. Because like, like the stock market, there's risk for players. You want to get the highest return per risk. Um, also the big proponent of getting the guys who do a little bit of everything. Mark Canna. Yep. Mark Canna is who the heck's – oh, I really want Mark Canna. He's a $10 player in a 15-team league. I mean, he's going to get you a little bit of the homers, a little bit of the steals, a little bit of everything. The little bit of the everything players give you value. Now, he's not going to earn $30 ever, but I paid $2 for Mark Hanna, and I'm getting $10 of value. That's $8 yeah. surplus. Luis Arias, yeah. I got with one of my last picks. He's a $15 player. Um, the accumulation of, of those guys at the bottom really work. And, again, as you say, with, with the star, uh, spread the risk – um, you're not going to find the dollar players getting it. You're going to find the three and four dollar players right. earning seven, eight, nine, and ten. Yep. That's where that's you bulk exactly up. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. I, I, the the one guy I got at, at, at a sort of a significant value in my AL league was uh, Cedric Mullins, who fell to me at twenty five dollars, I think. And he was coming off a $42 season and everybody at the table seemed to be thinking, and actually some of them were saying out loud, he can't repeat a $42 season. And I thought, if I pay 26 for him, he doesn't have to repeat a $42 season. He just has to be better than 26. And by baseball HQ valuations, he's just over $30 in value because of the 29 bags and decent on-base percentage. It's an on-base percentage league. I think that those are the kind of guys in that price range that can really make a lot of difference when you're putting together your team. And Patrick, I want to double down on what you said about knowing the strategy and, and having books about strategy now about fantasy baseball, just to know the strategy of how to draft the players, not knowing the players, because nowadays with social media, the era, the era of having a sleeper, quote unquote sleeper, does not exist anymore. Doesn't there exist. are so many websites, there are so many places you can find about knowledge about every single player. There are no more sleeper players. The only untapped resource that, that fantasy players have now is strategy and know how to build their team. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I'll also add in, in another component is that, you know, if you say, well, you know, sure, okay, great. So I, you got a $3 player and you get $8, great, so it's a $5 profit. Uh, so what? I still, you still need to get that guy who's going to be a $10 player and earn 40 And my answer to that is, you're right. In order to win it, you have to have a little bit of luck. You have to have few injuries. That's a big thing these days. The luck that you need is more. But I want to be able to hit and get that $30 excess by a $10 player jumping to 40 but you want you want to have enough of a base of aggregate value so that when you are lucky and get that you win. I remember that um, mm. when I used to play the NCAA tournament, the every of the bracket tournament, you go in your office and uh, you know everyone's oh I think this guy's going to I think this team's going to win this. I think this game I'm picking the 15 seed here. I'm they're picking the upsets. And I won my bracket tournament in my office three times in a span of 7 years. How did I do that? I actually picked every single favorite in every single game. But I picked the final four. I picked the final four. And you get the more points for the final four. And I figure as long as you get the final four correct, you just have to have enough points earlier on to be ahead. And it's exactly correct. I, I, I had more points than anybody else originally because I just picked favorites. And then, oh, I happened to get the final four, and that jumped ahead. Same thing here. So getting the, the, the you want to get more players right? It's more important to get more players right 
than to get a big player right. The the frequency is more important than the magnitude of success because you'll when you get lucky and you get that, then when that's when you jump up. And by the way, it also saves you in the bottom. If you don't really get that superstar, you can have a third place finish and cash out. Uh, it's always better to do this. Let's move on to let's move on to uh, thing strategies that we employed that went poorly this year. Patrick, what's something that you did that just didn't work for you? I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging, but I thought my strategy worked flawlessly in every, <laughs> in every league that I was in. I mean, what I wanted to do, I did, and it worked out really well for me. And I've just really, honestly, I've had some bad luck with injuries. Otherwise, I would be really competitive in the two leagues that I, that I ran. I also was in a best ball league that uh, I had a different strategy for that, and I was doing really well until I got nailed by injuries there. So I think I like my strategies. I think, though that there's a sort of a global strategy that we saw this year that did not go well, and that's the whole idea of pocket aces. I think that a lot of guys really rue the day that they decided to go starting pitcher, starting pitcher at the top because there was so much inconsistency among the so-called sure things at the, top of the, at the top of the list. Shane Bieber. Lots of guys went Shane Bieber in the second round. Lots of guys went... Uh, with various other pitchers that they missed time because of injury. They missed time because of um, um, just poor performance. They they don't pitch well. Lucas Giolito was a second or third round pick. Lucas Giolito has been bad this year. And I know hitters are also bad, but I think they're more reliable. And so I think that we're going to see a retreat from the pocket aces strategy next year. And I would counsel anybody who's planning to place a snake draft next year, don't be planning that a lot of your opponents are going to be doing pocket aces because I think everybody learned their lesson or a lot of people learned their lesson on that. Yeah. Ruvain, you can talk about the pocket aces. You did that in TGFBI, right? Yeah, I actually found that I've never done it before, and I did it this year. I got Garrett Cole. I had the number five pick in my – or I think it was number five or six in TGFBI, and I picked Garrett Cole my first pick, which is not – hasn't turned out that great. Yes, he's leading the league in strikeouts, but – He's, he's, he's not the ace that I expected him to be. And when it came back to me, I was thinking about going hitter, but I saw Max Scherzer sitting there, and I couldn't not take it because I thought it was a good value. But the problem is his good value there hampered me with my hitting, and I, I was never actually able to recover right now. I'm bouncing around between third and fifth place because my hitting isn't where I want it to be. So I don't think I'm, this is the first time I, and probably the last time I'm ever going to do pocket aces. I, I don't think I have any interest in doing that as well. Um, and But the one thing that I think really really went wrong and what I did is I took on too much injury draft and that's the in injury draft capital um I picked a lot we had me and our Aminia, we had a lot of shares in Jacob deGrom we didn't get as much playing time at him as we thought we would we sh he may make up he may give us his last push in the last month but not enough to make up for what we missed and for the replacement value that we had we picked a lot of players who were coming back we had a lot of uh, Ronald Acuna shares, and that didn't actually work out that well. Be I mean, he's he's doing okay, but I mean, he's still saying his knee is bothering him, so he's not even fully healthy. So I think the two, the two main things that I really did wrong was getting trying to take too much risk in injury, and it just didn't work out. And I don't think I'm going to take that much risk to start out the season. I'd rather start with a bunch of healthy guys than a guy who's a question mark coming into the season. Yeah, the the injury risk was was a lot. I'm guilty of that as well, and. You know, performance risk to me was I was monitoring, and I did not monitor enough injury risk. And uh, yeah, that that's a hundred percent a strategy I agree with. I want to go back though to the pocket aces, and um, I, I usually don't do this in the show, but 
I, w- I want to take account of, of of players, and it goes like this: hitter versus pitcher, right? Um, I want to go through some of the ADP, and you tell me if the guy was a, a hit or a bust for the year. And I want to do that with hitters versus pitchers. And let's just see what, what the rough percentage is. Again, this is not quantitative. We're just going to say hit or miss, yay or nay. And let's see what turns out. So, for example, for hitters, hit, yay or nay, hit or bust, Trey Turner. That was a hit, right? Hit, hit yep. Okay. Uh, what about Jose Ramirez? Hit. hit. Juan Soto? Hit. Hit. Vlad Guerrero? Semi-hit. 50-50 we'll, hit. We'll call it a hit because he retained half value, let's say. Bo Bichette, that was a bust. Bust, yeah. Um, Shohei Otani, the hitter, that's a hit. Huge hit, yeah. Bryce Harper, hard to say because of injury. I'd say a bust because of injury. He's actually yeah. ranked almost the same right now as um, as Ronald Acuna is value at, at yeah. this point, which is crazy. Certainly not performance-related, but it's that. Kyle Tucker, that's a hit. Yes. Right? Right. Um, Mike Trout, I'd say bust because of injury, right? Yep. Rafael Devers is a hit. Yep. Let's do a few more. Mookie Betts, that's a hit. Acuna is a bust. Luis Robert, hit, right? Yes. Um, Yeah, okay. Freddie Freeman, that's an obvious hit. Uh, what mm-hmm. about Ozzy Albies? That's a bust because of injury. Injury. Uh, My second three. round pick. Yeah. yeah, let's do three more. Uh, next three. Manny Machado, huge hit. Hit. Yes. Yep. Jordan Alvarez, hit. Tim Anderson. Yep. Bust probably because of injury. Yeah. Okay, so I've got twelve. I've got twelve hits and I've got six misses. So you know, it's this is a two thirds chance pretty much. Let's do the pitchers. All right, here we go. Yep. Garrett Cole. Hit. For, for where he was taken, I don't think he was a hit. 50 50. Um, yeah. Let's call him a hit because Patrick's the guest. Okay. Uh, Corbin Burns, that's a hit. DeGrum, that's a bust. Scherzer? Hit. Yeah, hit. Walker Bueller, it's a bust. Brandon Woodruff? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think Bust so. For the I think you level. should have a category for 50-50 and give, give yeah. them half a credit yeah. for a hit. Uh, Shane Bieber? Bust. Julio Urias? Actually a hit, I think. Hit, yeah. Okay. Uh, Giolito? Bust. Bust. Zach Wheeler? Hit, I'd say. Yeah, hit, yeah, yeah, yeah. a hit. Aaron Nola? It's also 50-50. Okay. Yeah. Let's call it a bust since we gave the other one credit. Two more. Robbie Ray? A bust for where he was taken, I think. More bust, yeah, I think. I, yeah, yeah. And Freddie Peralta? Bust. Okay, so we've got six hits, and we've got eight busts. So we're over 50% failure rate for pitchers, and we're two-thirds success rate. For hitters, I mean, to me, you know, if you want things that are gonna do early, you're just draining half your value on the pitchers. Whereas hitters, you're earning your value. Um, I, I just can't see why you would take two pitchers, pocket aces. I mean, one pitcher, like maybe pocket aces. You, you're running the risk of having one of those bust for sure, right? Two of them, you're doubling your odds. It, it's a bad tier. And it's a bad, bad tier to drain value. So, again, this is not a quantitative analysis, but this is just showing you that, you know, 
I, I did this to illustrate the fact that, you know, just take a look at the successes and failures. Where do you want to play? I definitely want to play in that hitter tier. Those are such good hits, and they hit for tremendous value. And and one thing, and how many of those hitters were bust because of injury? A lot of the pitchers we said bust for was not because of injury, but just right. because they didn't perform to what, what we expected them to perform. That's true. Yeah, it does come from the injury, um, not from the performance. And, yeah, you, you're going to have injuries anywhere up and down the scale, right? Uh, uh, so you might as well have the successful performance as well. All right. Um, I do want to talk about what we're going to alter for 2023 drafts. You know, what strategy do you have? Do you not per- perform this year that you say, you know what? I should be trying more of that. Uh, Patrick, we'll start with you. Well, in, in both the uh, tout auction and in the TGFBI snake draft, I was too cautious or too unwilling to get any kind of borderline sure thing saves. And I ended up paying for it in both leagues. I, I thought I could cobble it together on the waiver wire because I've done that successfully in the past. But I think there's there used to be a bit more of an information advantage that would let you kind of grab that guy a week early because you knew what was coming. But as Ravain said earlier uh, on a different topic, but the same general subject is you just can't rely on being the only guy who knows that anymore. There are no sleeper closers either that that you alone know about. And so I think I might lean a little more towards getting one of the established solid top tier closers a little earlier than I might ordinarily be comfortable with. I ordinarily start looking in the sixth or seventh round. I think I might bump that up fourth, fifth, maybe. I'm not going to get Edwin Diaz, I know, because I'm sure he's still going to go. Guys like that are going to go. But I'm going to be a little more aggressive in pursuing closers, even though I said earlier, and I stand by it, I think closers are extra risky because of the manager decision aspect of their playing time. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of echoed that earlier. Um, I think that you just have to see what closer in that second tier, call it elite but not super elite tier, is going for a little bit later than everybody else and in your particular draft, and that's who you go on because I think that's a great, great uh, spot to play in. Ruben, what about you? What's something that you uh, want to change for next year? I think I may go with a little bit more stars and scrubs in a 15-team type setting just because of the fact that I think it plays out a little bit better. If you have a deep knowledge of the player pool, I think you can manage a stars and scrub team a little bit easier in a 15-team league than in a smaller league like a 10-team or 12-team. So I think that's one thing I may change along with trying to avoid a lot of the injured players. I think it all depends on what the player pool is, but uh, sure, you know, and I, I wouldn't reserve myself to doing that. I always just say, let's see where the value is. Um, what I'm going to change this year, I think that I was very sloppy on the waiver wire this year. Uh, I went maybe the extra, not just dollar, but I went a lot over to get players, and they turned out to be bust really, really quickly. So I know in labor, mm. we spent at least 6 or $8 on two different players, and I ended up dropping them in two weeks. Um, because, you know, uh, they just lost playing time or, or whatever. You know, you figure you want to get the next hot thing, and it just didn't pan out, uh, and that was definitely uh, uh, definitely a problem. Uh, also uh, picked up and didn't give it enough time. So I know we picked up, like, Lars Newtbar, and maybe it was a space issue in the team or whatever, uh, dropped them too quick after, you know, we, we have the right pickup, but uh, just didn't have enough faith and... You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I find that the lower bids generally generate more return on investment, and holding 
you know, you, you, you spend money and you want to hold a little bit more and see what's doing. So I, I plan to be a little bit better on the waiver wire. Uh, it was a little bit sloppy. And I got to tell you, you know, it's, it's a saturated market, as we said earlier, to get the information, you've got to be even super sharper than you, than you were. What worked 10 years ago, um, people are quicker these days. So you've got to be lightning yep. quick. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and and unfortunately, back in the day, we used to have the opportunity to kind of mull things over, and a guy would get called up, and you'd say, hmm, "I'm going to watch this guy for a week, see if he's getting some playing time, see if he seems to be comfortable at the major league level." Not anymore. If you don't get in on the first week that guy's in the league, you're not going to get him, and that's that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So the next topic I want to talk about in strategy, and uh, really important to discuss strategy is. How do you make pitching decisions down the stretch? And, you know, when I was trying to set the lineup this week uh, in labor with, with Ruvain, and we have a couple of pitchers. We got Taiwan Walker and Pablo Lopez. And the question is, do we start them? And just to give you the general scenario, but it helps to give the example, like let's say Taiwan Walker has two starts in the week playing the Dodgers and Washington. That's one good start, Washington, you think. One difficult start with L.A., uh, whereas how about Pablo Lopez? He had a week where he would start against the Dodgers and Atlanta. That's two tough starts. Now, it's always about your categories later in the year. Obviously, if you have an okay ERA lead, you could be more flexible on that, and if you really need the counting stats, you should push towards that. But well, do you have a general idea uh, or a specific idea, Patrick, on how you make decisions when you have pitchers having some – Poor starts during the week, um, but they're too start. Like, it, 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 what do you use to say, okay, I'm going to do it? Do you obviously, if you're in a in a mono league, you're going to start anybody who has two starts. If you have a 15 team league, what's what do you do? 10 team league, are you starting uh, Pablo Lopez who has two bad starts, even though he's a good pitcher? How do you demarcate? Well, as you said, for me, the entire issue is context. And by the way, in my mono league, I'll sit a I'll sit a guy who's got two starts against good teams. If it's one bad, one good, I'll probably start him. But if I've got a pitcher in your scenario where a guy's going up against a you know a Dodgers team and then the the the, the Braves, I don't think I'm doing that. I I don't think I'm going to take that risk because I can see the pitcher, especially if it's the kind of pitcher who's kind of marginal for you anyways. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be thinking about it. All of a sudden, my nightmare scenario in these kind of things is I get two starts of three innings each and five earned runs each. And I don't get the benefit of strikeouts. I'm not going to get a win out of the deal. And I get crushed on my ratios. And I just don't want to take that, that chance under any circumstances. But late in the year, I think the context that really matters the most is whether you're attacking wins and strikeouts or you're defending ERA and whip. And if you're attacking, then you've got to attack. You've got to throw everybody out there. You start eight guys, even if they're pitching in tough situations. In the off chance, you're going to pick up some strikeouts. If you're protecting your ERA and whip, then you don't start anybody who's even remotely risky. Throw a middle reliever in there. You might luck into a vulture win. And in the meantime, you're protecting your ratios. For me, that's the whole thing. That's pretty much true throughout the year. But at this time of year, especially... I'm in a situation in my Tout Wars League where I'm like 0.02 away from picking up a couple of ERA points. 
I'm not throwing, you know, James Caprellian out there against anybody. I don't care if he if he's playing the, you know, Little League World Champions. Ruvain, you agree? And what are your thoughts? I think that it's this this at time of the season, it's so hard to not throw a two-star pitcher. I love throwing two-star pitchers, but a lot of times during this, this part of the year, you, the two-star pitcher doesn't necessarily get the two starts. Like you mentioned, the Taiwan Walker situation, he's not end up. He's going to lose. He's actually lost his two-start because they just announced that Carlos Carrasco is coming back on Sunday, so they're giving everyone an extra day. So the two-star pitchers can be risky in the fact that. Yes, you're, you're gonna you're gonna get the strikeouts. You have a chance of of getting a win, but you know if you throw in the if you throw in the relievers, you can get a vulture win, and I, and I really like that, and I really like having that option. It also depends on where you're ranking in in the in the in each uh, um, in each category. If if you're close to saves, you're wanting and need to get a couple of saves to get more points, then I think that's more worth it to to to, to throw the um the reliever. But otherwise, I think it, the two star pitcher, I like them because you get the two, you get the possible two starts, you get the strikeouts. They usually don't they don't gomber you necessarily every single time, especially down the stretch. So you know I, I'm I, I tend to lean toward the two. I know I'm talking in circles, but I tend to lean toward the two star pitcher. As opposed to the closers, yeah, uh, I, I agree with both. Uh, echoing, you know, what Patrick said. Obviously, it's it's all about the categories at this point in the year. Um, and just to remind our listeners that when you say it's about the categories, it's either where you're up or you're close. You, you either where you're just ahead of somebody or just behind somebody because you can lose points, right? It's about the marginal. Right. It's it's where it's where the great sorry it's where the gradients are the largest. So if there are four people within very, very close reach, whether you're ahead of the curve or down of the curve, the close gradient categories are the most important. If you can only lose one point, if you don't have enough closers or whatever, why are you starting anybody? I mean, we're in a league, Ruben and I, where we've got like a 20-point, 20 20-save 20 lead. We're not starting Edwin Diaz. We're not starting Liam Hendricks. There's no point. We don't need the saves at all. Um, there's better, more uses of our slots. Um, so it really depends on that, and it's the gradient. It's how close they are to each other. Um, but, you know, the gen- it's hard to give everybody a one-size-fits-all thing, but the general thing is there's always a line of always star pitchers above a certain point. There's always a line of never star pitchers above per format. If you're in a 10-team league, you know, the, the it's going to be a lot higher. It's going to be uh, – if it's a 15-team league, you're always going to start pitchers above, you know, the first uh, FP2 or 3. It really depends on the format. But, you know, you have your general always start this, your general never start this, and then the line of where you start or not is always bounced around based on the matchup, based on the category need, and so on and so forth. Uh, and you have to do that yourself. No one can tell you exactly what to do, but you just have the general principles. And I'll throw one other thing in just one sec. I'm sorry to interrupt, Ariel, but if you're planning to try to get wins by using relievers, make sure you go to a site that has leverage stats and take a look at the last maybe two weeks to four weeks of usage and make sure that you're picking up relievers from the free agent pool who seem to be getting into high leverage situations. If you're, if you're picking up a reliever and he's the kind of guy who comes in when the game is out of hand, you're never going to get that vulture win that you want. And not only that, but the highest leverage guys tend to be the best pitchers who have the lowest DRAs and ratios that will really help your team in a number of ways. So find a site that has uh, leverage stats 
that are based on uh, two to four previous weeks or have some kind of time constraint or allow you to choose a time frame and make your reliever pitcher choices based on leverage or at least make it part of your consideration set. Absolutely. Before we go on with the rest of the show, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Now, I actually want to build on what we were just talking about. We're talking about whether we want to start starters or relievers and stuff like that. Last year, there were a total of 835 people, players on the IL, including COVID. This year, there were 600. And, and, and if you take out the people who had COVID, it was a total of 619. This year, taking, uh, taking, out of COVID, taking players who didn't have COVID, do you think that number is up or down from last year? So basically, do you think there are more injuries so far this year, or do you think there are less injuries this year? Patrick? Well, just based on the general trend, I'm going to say more. Yeah, I would have thought more this year. The answer is actually less. If you take out COVID, in COVID um, IL slots, 132 players were injured on average or put on the IL last year per month. This year, 106 so actually, there's almost a 20% decrease in aisle stints this year. However, coming down the stretch, a whole bunch of top pitchers went on the aisle. Shane McClanahan, um, Justin Verlander, and pitchers of their elk. What happens, Patrick, this is a question for you. What happens when they come back? Are you playing them right away, even though they may only go four or five innings, you may not get a win out of them? Or are you going to use like a so-so starter and, and do that instead of playing a pitcher who may not go the innings needed to get a win? Well, so-so pitchers got, got a relatively reduced chance of getting a win anyways. I'll always start uh, Shane McClanahan over any scrub that I have lying around on my roster that I'm picking up out of the free agent pool. He could go six, right? I mean, he could strike out the first ten guys. It wouldn't be the first time he's done it. Well, I guess it probably would be, but you know what I mean. He could easily strike out ten guys in the first four innings, and then he can coast through the fifth and be in position for a win. I, I, I think if you've got a... A, a star player in any kind of context, I think you're always better going with them, even if there it appears like there might be some risk. Because I don't think that they would put him out there if they thought there was a, a genuine risk that he wasn't going to be able to perform well. I mean, if you told me that Justin Verlander, upon coming back, is only going to have four innings, would you play him or Kyle Bradish? I think I'd still play Verlander, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Knowing that he won't get a win, uh, right? Uh yeah, I mean, the, the, the superstar level, you're going to play no matter what when coming back. Other than that, I generally do try to wait a start. want to see less about the innings, number of innings, more about, I don't know, maybe they're getting some rust out. Uh, so I would usually wait, but for the, for the uh, superstars, yeah, you're going to play them right away. So, so let's say, what, are, what about a Nestor Cortez? He's supposed to come back next week. Do you put him right into your lineup right away, or do you wait a start? I mean... Depends on the format. Uh, most deeper yeah, formats are playing. Um, I believe he's he's maybe playing. I believe it's Tampa. I think you're playing Tampa. Probably playing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to take a close look at the left hand, right hand kind of things and those kind of considerations before I threw myself into a decision one way or the other. I mean, he's a good pitcher and it's a great team. A little bit of bullpen consternation going on there, but. I'd probably lean towards starting him because Tampa's not a real big offensive powerhouse, but I'd, I'd definitely have to take a closer look. I'd lean to starting him, though. 
obviously it depends who else you have on your roster that you would play instead of him. Obviously, it's a big factor. Right. Um, in, yeah. a sh- in a shallow league, I probably won't pitch him. I probably have some kind of decent option. Uh, in a 15-team league, I'm going to start him, period, you know. Um, all right, uh, let's do some waiver wire picks. Who is somebody, Patrick, who you're interested in picking up for the next year, for the next week? Uh, I've got a couple, uh, and I'll go. I'll just give you one, and then we can all go through. And if there's time, I'll I'll do my other one. My choice for the waiver wire pickup this week is um, no, I can't find it here. Corbin Carroll. He got called up. He's a prospect who got called up by Arizona. He played his first game on Monday of this week, so he's probably eligible in most leagues for this week's, this weekend's fab runs. Um, he really shot through the minors in a very rapid time. He was young for every level, and he got into Major League Baseball at age 22, and he's only turned 22 eight days ago. So really, he's a 21-year-old, and he's in the major leagues. That's always a good sign. He's got power. He's, uh, av- I think he's got 28 home runs and 650 plate appearances in the minors. 52 stolen bases in that time with only seven caught stealings. He's got real terrific plate skills. He's a plus defender in the outfield. I think Corbin Carroll in Arizona is going to get every chance to play. And if he does, I think he could probably give you some good fantasy results. I will say this. In the longer term, you might want to be concerned about a shoulder injury that he had a couple of years ago that cost him uh, a season and he struggles, he's a left-handed hitter, and he struggles really hard against left-handed pitching. And, of course, that'll get worse in the major leagues. So it could mean that there's a platoon, especially in his near future, that's still a good side of the platoon. He's getting the right-handed pitchers, but it might cost him some plate appearance. And he strikes out a lot. He doesn't have a real high swinging strike rate, but nonetheless, he strikes out a lot, 20%, I think, something like that which is not that bad, but that's in the minor leagues. You can probably bump it up to the high 20s in Major League Baseball at this level because of the better pitching. And uh, I wonder if he might be a little too passive, but um, if I had the opportunity, I'd certainly be putting in a fairly aggressive bid on Corbin Carroll if I needed an outfielder. Patrick, if you have $250 left in FAB, in a 1,000 FAB league, like say the NFBC, how much are you bidding this week? On Carroll? Yeah. Well, of course, a lot depends on you have to look through everybody else in your league, see what they have and whether they need outfielders or whether a Corbin Carroll would be worth it to them. But I think I'd probably be looking at something in the neighborhood of 175 to 200. Moving? I think I'd probably go like 80 or 90. I wouldn't go more than that. I, I like to have the hammer at the end. I like to have more fab at the end. So I don't think I'd be spending that much. I'd say it depends where I am in the standings. If I'm in last place, I'm bidding $240 on Corbin Carroll. If I'm in first place, I'm probably putting a keep honest 75 to 100 bid. And obviously, if I'm in the middle, somewhere in the middle of that. Um, it really depends on how much you need the guy, I think, right? Um, all right, moving. How about a waiver wire player for you? I got a couple. I'm going to start with Manny Margot. He's For some reason, he's only in 32% of CBS leagues. He just got, got off the IL. Brandon Lau is on the IL, so he's going to get more playing time. He's had a 301 average with three homers and six stolen bases, 28 runs in 60 games, and he's hitting 318 since 318 since he came back. He's been playing almost every day. If you need an outfielder, he's a definite, if he's available in your league, he's an, obviously he's a get, I think. Um, another guy who's going to be playing him a lot in the next couple of days, actually the Yankees are playing the Red 
Rays six times out of the next 10 games. So they're going to get to get to know each other a little bit better now. Oswaldo Cabrera from the Yankees. I actually saw him play when he went to Mets Yankees. He actually threw someone out at home plate. I believe he threw Brett Beatty out at home plate at the game I was at. He's played seven games in the outfield. He's eligible at second base, which means he may get eligible in the outfield soon as well. Um, he's batting 320 over the last week. So don't look at that 240 average he has so far this year. And in AAA for this year, he already has nine homers and 13 stolen bases. He hasn't shown it that much yet in the majors, but that 15-15 um, possibility is always there for him. And, and going down the stretch, he's going to get a lot more playing time, even though he's a rookie. And another guy I want to mention is A.J. Puck. I mentioned him before, but Zach Johnson is on the I.L. Danny Jimenez is on the I.L. for the A's. A.J. Puck is a closer by default. He's only owned in 22% of leagues, and if you need a closer, yes, they're not the best team, but if you do need a save, he's a guy to get. I think if you need a closer, I'd go for Rafael Montero, who's filling in as a closer in Houston right now. Houston is a far better team. I think I'd actually rather have him over Puck if available. Former Met, of course. Um, my guy for this week, Jake McCarthy. Uh, on the year, six homers, 12 stolen bases, 288 average. That's pretty good. In 212 at-bats, I mean, you have a plus steals guy. He got batting average guy and somebody who's on pace for, you know, 15 to 20 homers or so. <laughs> Those are good pace numbers. You can do a lot worse than Jake McCarthy, uh, and he's available. By the way, the other prospect up is Gunnar Henderson, uh, who provides some powered speed at third base position. Um, twenty, He could be a 25-10 guy in his peak. We're talking like a maybe top 260 player. Uh, definitely somebody. You never know with prospects if they'll hit the ground running, but uh, so far he looks good. Um, and the other, I'll mention two other guys, and Patrick you can throw in other guys as well. Um, Lars Newtbar, I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, you should probably try to pick him up now if you can. Uh, he's still available in some shallow leagues, so take a look. And Mark Canna, we mentioned him earlier. The guy's available on the waiver wire. He's on fire this month. He's been like 300 with like like six homers or so. Uh, Mark Canna is looked in the groove. I saw him at a home run live. I went to the Tuesday Met game. Uh, yeah, I, I'd pick him up. What about you, Patrick? Anybody else? Well, my second guy was also Gunnar Henderson. Uh, the manager in Baltimore has said that he's going to play all around the infield. I don't think that's true because the weakness in the Baltimore infield was at third base. And as you said, looks like he's going to play there. I don't think they want to sit um, Jorge Mateo, who's having a pretty good year despite a low batting average. He's been pretty productive in the counting stats. And Rugnet Odor, uh, also very low batting average, but he's providing a little bit of pop and a lot of spirit out there on the field. So I think Gunnar Henderson, good power speed combination, as you said, probably not a super asset as far as batting average goes, but he strikes out so much. But I think that this guy's going to be a real good player and it may start now. It may not. I like, I like Corbin Carroll better than I like Gunnar Henderson for right now and probably a little bit more for the future, but Gunnar Henderson's definitely a guy to be looking at. Time for the pitcher preview. Let's see who the Pirates are playing this week. All right, Patrick, who is a, uh, a pitcher that you might want to pick up for this week? Well, I have to say that I was very confused when you started talking about Taiwan Walker having starts against Los Angeles and Washington or something, because Taiwan Walker is actually one of my picks. He's at Pittsburgh and at Miami, which looks to me like <laughs> a pretty good pair of uh, Looks to me like a pretty good pair of starts. I also like Framber Valdez, uh, two home games, Texas and the Angels, a couple of weak-hitting teams. I also don't mind a couple of St. Louis guys, Jack Flaherty and Jose Quintana, both get games 
at home against Washington and at Pittsburgh. So there's uh, there's four guys you could look at, all of whom are playing Pittsburgh, which is always a thing that you're trying to target if you're doing this kind of exercise. Well, there you go. That's why the theme music came up. Uh, yeah, the, the dro- I, saw, the I heard that that's funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got the drops there. It's the section where we look at pitchers who face the Pirates. (laughs) There you go. Um, Yeah, uh, by the way, you mentioned Taiwan Walker. We used that example earlier because originally he was on the schedule to 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 pitch two games. Uh, I was using more of an example. But, yeah, actually he's to start this coming week. Ruvain, who's a pitcher you'd like to pick up? Yeah, I was actually going to th- mention Jack Flaherty because he is coming back. But just in case, if if Dakota Hudson is still available, I can't see the the, the Cardinals actually taking him out of his line, their lineup. He's been pitching very well. He's owned almost fi- almost forty seven percent of the leagues in CBS, so he's owned a lot. But he was scheduled to have the two starts that Jack Flaherty has. But Jack Flaherty never seems to stay healthy for an extended period of time, and Dakota Hudson has been pitching pretty well. They may actually use him to piggyback a little bit to help save Jack Flaherty a little bit, so he doesn't have to go as far. So that's a pitcher you may want to think as a middle relief guy who maybe dropped this week or, or someone to pick up in the future weeks just to hold on to for the next couple of weeks to throw in there because he may be a vulture for a lot of wins. But the main guy I wanted to mention was Drew Smiley. He's only one start this week. It's against the Reds, which means he's probably going to be a two-star. I think he's pitching Wednesday or thir- I think it's Wednesday. He's probably going to be a two-star the following week. So he's last four outings. He last four appearances, 23 in the third innings, 21 strikeouts, 1.16 ERA, and a .94 whip. That is pretty good. And if he's one start versus the Reds, which is not a great team, yes, I know Drew Smiley's not a good team either, but the Reds are not that good of a team. And if he's a two-star and you need and you want to get the two-star guy, he's only 32% on CBS, and he's a guy to look at. Yeah, I have a couple guys to talk about. Uh, first of all, on the Mets, David Peterson now – uh, Carrasco's coming back, so maybe he gets bumped from, ro- from the rotation, but you think the Mets pitchers are going to stay healthy? I hope they do, but you never know. And David pitchers, Peterson's pitching lights out. 321 ERA, seven wins on the season in just 89 innings, 104 strikeouts. He's got one of the best sliders out there for swing and miss. David Peterson's a good pitcher. Uh, gotta think that he's going to factor in somewhere for innings for the Mets down the stretch. Um, I can even see the Mets going six-man rotation to keep to keep Degrom and Scherzer fresh. I can really see that. So, uh, and the Mets have a really easy schedule in September. So, David Peterson, maybe if he doesn't start this week, I would just keep him around uh, if, if you have the room. Uh, Justin Steele, he's playing versus Cincinnati versus San Francisco. Then he's versus Colorado. So, bunch of decent good teams. Three one eight ERA. And by the way, uh, since July first, it's a one four six ERA. And it's sort of legitimate. Um, maybe it's not one four six legitimate. It's maybe sub three. He's got a fifty percent ground ball rate. Anytime you see that, that's a great sign. Nothing unlucky about his profile. The only issue is winning games. He's on the Cubs. Doesn't win a ton of games at all. But he's been decent. If you are looking for somebody serviceable that won't, you know, somebody to put in in the deep league, it's probably for you. Trevor Rogers. He's still available in leagues. He's looking good in his rehab. Pick him up. Um, he looks very good in his outing versus Tampa Bay. He's at Philadelphia this week, but then he's two-star Texas and at Washington. So kind of, you kind of have to pick him up now. And the other pitcher I want to mention is Marco Gonzalez. He is a very streaky pitcher. He goes on torrid streaks, and then he gets roughed up. He has a career 4.05 ERA, and every year he seems to get to that. He's at 3.99 ERA this year. 
doesn't have a lot of Ks, but he's actually increased his ground ball rate this year. He stays in the game a long time. He has actually three straight wins in in uh, so the last three starts. He's won five out of his last seven games that he's pitched. He's on a good streak. He has only one start this year of under five innings. Um, and he, like I said, decisions. He he's ten and twelve, so he stays in games. He is uh, versus Chicago White Sox versus Atlanta. Atlanta's not a great start, but it's two start. And if you need the wins, there you go. And then he's at L.A. Angels. So uh, I'm always a big fan of Marco Gonzalez, and he's streaky. He's on a streak right now, so consider him. Anyone else have any uh, anything else to mention? I don't, but I'd like to challenge you guys with a trivia question of my own. This is something oh. I talked about on uh, Baseball HQ Radio in my extra innings commentary at the end of the show, and I'll phrase it differently than I did there, but which relief pitcher has the most wins in the major leagues and has more wins than Aaron Nola, Max Scherzer, Corbin Burns, Joe Musgrove, Nestor Cortez, Adam Wainwright, Brandon Woodruff, Corey Kluber, or Nick Pavetta? He's outwon them all. It's the guy on uh, on Toronto? Yes. You're talking about Adam Simber? Adam Simber is the right answer. Yep. yep. There you go. Adam he, he's always on the top of the list of pitchers to pick up, and I just don't want to get him just for his wins. That's, that's <laughs> the only reason I would actually pick him up. Crazy. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's pretty inconsistent. I had him on my roster in tout, and I think I got six or seven wins for a while. He was leading my team in wins before uh, I dropped him because his ratios were not that great, and there's no strikeouts at all. But, yeah, there's there's wins to be had out there. If you're interested, Ryan Helsley of St. Louis has nine wins this year. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, sometimes you you always have that one odd uh, reliever. Was it Trevor May? A couple of years ago, he had like nine or ten wins. Yeah, and a couple, and a couple of years ago, I think um, Jerry's familiar led the Mets team in wins a couple oh, yeah. of years ago, which yeah, is yeah. crazy also. It's crazy. It is. The first time I ever won a league, my – the reason I won was a guy named Arthur Rhodes. I don't know if you remember him. He pitched for Baltimore and Seattle, and he had 10 wins for Seattle and like an 090 ERA and an 070 whip or something like that in a lot of innings because he pitched a lot of innings. So uh, I have fond memories of some middle relievers who really came through in the crunch. All right, moving. Time for your injury report. Let's uh, see who's hurt. Well, first of all, I'm going to mention the pitchers I just mentioned before. Shane McClanahan, he was placed on the aisle with shoulder impingement, confirmed on MRI. He's scheduled to have a cortisone injection, and the Rays manager, Kevin Cash, said it is possible for him to return after a minimum stay on the aisle, depending on how he responds to the injection. We'll see how that goes. Tony Gonsolin was placed on the aisle with a right forearm strain. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts said he expects Gonsolin to only miss two starts. He said that Gonsolin felt some tightness coming out of his most recent start, so they placed him on the IL out of the abundance of caution. I actually think that Jordan did that just to check his innings just so he doesn't have too many innings going into the playoffs. Francisco Alvarez, a catcher for the Mets who was always thought to be brought up, he may not be done for the season after all. People thought that he was going to be out because he needed right ankle surgery. He also had an injection, and they're trying to avoid surgery at this point, so he still may come back, but I don't think he's going to get much playing time in the majors, so if if you're in a a hold, if a, a keeper league, hold on to him. He'll be fine for next year, but I don't think you can get any value out of him this year. Justin Verlander placed on the I.L. with a right calf strain. MRI revealed calf fascial disruption, but no muscle 
fiber disruption, which means that it's not that bad. In English terms, that means it's not that bad. There's no timeline <laughs> for his return, but I think they do also just want to rest him, make sure he's ready for the playoffs because there's really no reason to have him. And another guy who was, I was actually thinking about mentioning in the in the waiver wire was Eduardo Escobar because Brett Beatty was placed on the I.O. with a thumb in. Injury. He actually tore his UCL in his thumb. He needs surgery. He's done basically for the year for five weeks, which means that because Luis Guillorme is still on the IL, Eduardo Escobar will now be the full-time third baseman for the Mets in that lineup, playing against an easy schedule. He's only 44% owned in CBS, so if he's available in your league, take a look. He may be because he's only batting 218, but he's going to get significant playing time down the stretch. By the way, do you think that it's a good thing for the Mets to have an easy schedule down the stretch in terms of being prepared for the postseason? Like, do you, is it good for the hitters to gain the confidence in the hitting heading into the postseason, or is it better if they play tougher teams so that they get better competition? What do you think? I think it's it's better for them to get as many wins under their belt and get that first round by as much as yeah, possible. Yeah, They're yeah, trying yeah. to stave off the Braves, and the Brave, the Mets haven't collapsed. That's, that's the whole thing in New York, how the Yankees are collapsing and the Mets are not collapsing just the Braves are really really good with the Braves down breathing down their neck the Mets just won two out of three against the Dodgers two out of three against the Dodgers that's a big deal because now they're playing Washington Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Miami um, Oakland they're playing all the really low-level teams which is good build up their confidence get everyone where they should be they can do the six-man rotation which is good for uh, for the Mets but bad for fantasy because you're going to lose those two-start uh, slots for for Max Scherzer and pitchers on their roster but I think it's great for them I think it's it'll help build their confidence get them to where they need to be and which is getting that first round by I think Scherzer might uh, be the kind of guy who'll throw his weight around and say, you're not skipping my turn in the rotation, and he'll probably get away with it because they're paying him like a bazillion dollars. But uh, to, to answer uh, Ariel's question, I think that it's good for the Mets to have a lot of weak sisters that they can play. They're, they're second-string guys, mix them in, make sure they get ready and have, uh, have some field experience in case of injury during the early rounds of the playoffs or during the playoffs in general. I think this uh, whole schedule thing is working out really, really well for the Mets for uh, for a lot of different reasons. I think they're going to go into the playoffs in a very good frame of mind and probably on a pretty nice winning streak or, you know, not a consecutive game winning streak, but they'll have a lot of wins under their belt as they head in and confidence, it matters. Yeah, the Mets have not had a 15-game streak, a 15-game uh, stretch this year where they've lost more than eight where they've lost more than eight games. I think their worst their worst stretch this year of 15, they were 7-8. and eight. Uh, Incredible, incredible consistency for the Mets. All right, well, that's the end of our show. I want to thank Patrick Davitt for coming on the program. Patrick is a fantastic uh, writer and podcaster. Uh, I enjoy being on his show and really enjoy having you on our show. So thanks for coming, Patrick. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's so much fun to talk with you guys. Uh, it's so much to learn when I talk to you guys. It's a real, it's a real treat for me. I listen to the podcast every time it comes out, and then to be part of it is just a, it's a thrill and an honor. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, fantastic! Um, and and likewise, by the way, uh, Ruvain, uh, what about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I continue to tweet out, tweet out injuries through the rest of the season. Um, and you can still catch my weekly article on Rotoballer, which comes out to help you know who's injured, when's they're, when they're coming back, who's taking their place, and everything like that to help you hopefully win your fantasy leagues. 
And I'm Ariel Cohen. I write for Fangraphs, Rotobuller, the ATC Projections, and, uh, of course, uh, Twitter at ATCNY. And, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. All right. Well, uh, season coming to a close. We'll, uh, Ruben and I will probably do a couple of shorter shows just for some waiver wire and stuff. And, of course, we'll wrap everything up uh, towards the end of the month uh, as we get set going into 2023 offseason, which is uh, right around the corner there. But, uh, of course, stick with us and go pound those fantasy leagues that you're in. Uh, Every little thing you do can propel you, and it's not too late. We got five weeks left or so. It's not too late. You can overcome points. Obviously, if you're in last place out by a hundred points, it's something else. But if you're down by fifteen, you never know. Uh, go for it. All right. Once again, thanks again to Patrick Davitt for joining the show, and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.